Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the History of England, episode 63, The Last Great Justicia. Now I should start by saying how glad I am to be back. It has felt like a lifetime away, though it was in fact just three weeks. The almost complete dearth of history was beginning to give me withdrawal symptoms, but I was buoyed up by the messages and emails and stuff, so thanks very much for that. And where were we? Well, in January 1227 at Oxford, Henry made an announcement that by the Common Council of Stephen, Archbishop of Canterbury, and our bishops, abbots, earls, and barons, and other magnates, and fideles, he would henceforth issue charters under his own seal. Although there was no official announcement that he'd reached his majority, this was the practical effect. Between 1227 and 1234, we then have a sort of intermediate period between the minority proper and the full personal rule of the king. It's a period when Henry's government is still dominated by the traditional political figures from the time of his father. However, Hubert was rubbing his hands with glee. Henry's majority was exactly what he'd been waiting for. It was time to cash in his chips. Since 1219, he'd served without being able to get any reward in terms of long-term land grants or titles, since these were banned until Henry came of age. But now, Henry obliged in spades. He made Hubert the Earl of Kent, and he gave him two honours in hereditary right. And he made him a powerful marcher lord, with the castles of Montgomery, Cardigan, Carmarthen, Gromont, White Castle and Skenfrith. And at the same time, Hubert was also able to establish his nephew, Richard de Berg, in Ireland in Connacht, and the following year to be made Justiciar of Ireland. It was most definitely payback time. 
Meanwhile, the elder statesmen, who might have taken some of his light, were dropping like flies. The Earl of Salisbury, John's half-brother, died in 1226. Peter de Roche would have rather eaten his liver than sit and watch Hubert gloat over his success. And so, in August 1227, he left from Brindisi on crusade. He spent some time hanging with the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II, the stupid Mundi guy, who'd actually by this stage negotiated the return of Jerusalem to the Christian, and so Peter got to visit Jerusalem and then travel to the papal court. This is not a guy who plays second fiddle easily. He will be back, and Hubert will not be pleased to see him. And finally, Stephen Langton dies in 1228. And so we are set for the next stage of Henry's reign, and where slowly we begin to see the character of the new king emerging. At the Council of Oxford in 1227, Henry had also demanded that now that he was taking control, anyone who held a charter of rights or land from the kings of England would have to have them confirmed. Clearly, this was a bit of a money-making exercise, but there was a precedent for it, set by his father at the start of his reign. And there's evidence that a lot of people came forward. The additional justification here was also that many charters had been granted throughout Henry's minority, but, as we've noted, couldn't be made permanent until his majority, so all that stuff needed clearing up. By the way, I'll no doubt end up continually referring to fines and things called finerals, so just as well to explain them, probably. The word fine in this period refers to any payments made by someone to the king in return for rights or privileges, rather than necessarily a financial penalty in a legal case, so we're not talking parking ticket here. All these payments were written down in government records called fine rolls. And for a number of years, there's been a project going on to translate all of these and digitise them. So, for the geeks amongst you, you can go to finerollshenry3.org.uk and see them and read records from the period. I'll post the link on the website and Facebook. It doesn't look from the fine rolls as though this raised a vast amount of money, something like £2,700. It also looks as though the initiative wasn't driven through with any great force, so the people that came forward came forward, the ones that didn't weren't hunted down and forced to do so. It has become clear that whatever Henry's faults, he has nothing of the unbridled rapacity and force of nature of his father John. The largest amount offered for confirmation was a 750 marks from the Bishop of Winchester, i.e. Peter de Roche, followed by 600 marks from the Templars and 500 marks each from the Hispitalers and the Bishop of Bath. That first one's quite interesting. Clearly, here we have Hubert giving his old political rival a bit of a kicking. Just while we're on money, I've always thought that it's very difficult to get a good idea of the scale of what these figures all mean. Marks, pounds, mm. So, at the risk of becoming boring, I'll keep giving some comparisons as we go along. My comparison of the day is that a labourer at the bottom of the end of the social scale might earn just over £1 a year, so that's about one and a half marks. To be a knight, you'd reckon to need an income of about £15 to £20 a year. And as we've seen, normal royal revenue at this particular time was about £22,000. So, 750 marks is a lot of money. We've often also remarked in these pages how relationships between brothers can be difficult, as I'm sure my own brother would agree. Think of Athelstan being accused of having his brother drowned, for example. Henry was to have something of a hot and cold relationship with his own brother over the years, so this might be a good time to introduce him. 
Richard was John's second son, and two years younger than Henry. In fact, we've already met him last time during the Gascony campaign. At the age of eight, he was made Sheriff of Berkshire, and I hope he threw his weight around. In 1225, Henry knighted him and gave him the Earldom of Cornwall as a birthday present, though history doesn't record if he gave him a card as well, and how he managed all that wrapping paper. At the same time, he also made him Count of Poitou, though the latter, of course, was something of an empty gesture, on account of the fact that he didn't have it anymore. We'll see lots more of Richard, who becomes one of the richest men in Europe, is elected King of the Romans, has 11 children, and is generally a figure in his brother's life. So, Henry's big priority was to reclaim the lands that his father had lost in France, as well as the ones that he had lost as well. Remember, we're only 25 years or so away from the seismic event. It seems pretty natural that this should be the main concern of a 20-year-old king out to make his name. And in fact, he'd already mooted the idea of invasion in 1226, when Louis had been busy murdering Cathars in Toulouse, but a letter from the Pope had stopped him in his tracks. So this, in fact, was the main reason why he'd chosen January 1227 to assume his majority. Louis of France had died unexpectedly in 1226 and had therefore left a 12-year-old son under the regency of his mother Blanche of Castile. This son was also called Louis, by the way, since France appears to have a national obsession with the name. This new version will be Louis IX and a figure of some fame. But of course, in 1227, he's a figure of very little size and you will know by now that a minority is a difficult time in the medieval kingdom. Everyone gets nervous, no one can relax, the baronial wolves start sniffing around. In the view of his later career, I don't think wolf is quite the right image for Henry, but he did start his own bit of fishing, casting bread onto the waters of strife by sending out embassies to the nobles of Normandy, Anjou, Brittany and Poitou, telling them what a great guy he was and how he was clearly their rightful lord, not that loser Louis. And he does get a bit of a nibble, just to extend the fishing analogy, the fish concern is Peter of Dreux, the Bishop of Brittany. Now, there's been a connection between the Dukes of Brittany and England since the conquest, when the Dukes of Brittany also became the Earls of Richmond. These rights had been withdrawn after Brittany cut herself loose under the Capetians, but the old connection is still there. Peter had spent a bit of time giving his independently-minded barons a kicking, and felt well in control and ready to use the opportunity Henry presented to assert his independence from the Capetians. Of course, invading France was a rather more complicated proposition than it once had been. One problem was that the closest available port was way down south at Bordeaux, and this was a problem that Peter of Brittany could help with. But the biggest problem was one of money. At the time of the Grand Alliance of 1214, John had managed to amass a fortune of £133,000 to fight his corner. At 22000 Henry's royal revenues had recovered a lot since the dark days of the Regency, but were still a quarter of what the Capetians could command, and so puny that it could take him a lifetime to gather anything like what his father had had at his disposal. Another problem was that his chief man, Hubert, was anything but enthusiastic about the prospect of war against the French. The chronicler's description is that Henry waxed hot, but that Hubert wasn't keen at all, and so distracted Henry with various stratagems, a bit like distracting a young child with a shiny thing when they're about to go ballistic. So in effect, Hubert slowed things down, and meanwhile there were other distractions. 
In July, Henry and Hubert had a spat with Brother Richard about the rights to some manor somewhere, and Richard was joined at Stamford by William Marshall and the Earl of Chester in what looks suspiciously like a potential rebellion, and a number of other earls were clearly in support. So, in August 1227, they all met up at Northampton, and Henry does what he does best and gives in, anything for a peaceful life and to keep things happy. Although maybe that's harsh, given the number of earls arrayed against him. And Hubert should really have been taking note. Remember that the Marshall family had been his big supporter in his power struggle against Peter de Roche. So what was going on here? Next year, in 1228, it's the turn of Llewellyn to distract him with campaigns in Wales, which don't end brilliantly for Henry in line with most of his campaigns. By the end of 1228, Henry thinks he's there. He's gathered an army at Portsmouth, ready to sail over and give it to the French. But oops! Hubert had managed accidentally on purpose to assemble too few ships. Despite a quick burst of Angevin-style fury, there was nothing Henry could do about that, and everybody went home. But surely 1229 would be the year. Peter of Brittany came over to England and paid homage and became Henry's man, and incidentally received the Dukes of Brittany's traditional honour of Richmond. Plus, Henry gave him 5,000 marks for the defence of Brittany, which is the start of a bit of a gravy train for Peter. But Peter advised Henry to wait for Easter the following year, and so another year was to pass. And meanwhile in 1228, Stephen Langton had finally died, and we get a bit of infighting that doesn't help Henry's popularity either. You may remember that the monks of Canterbury are a cussed lot who keep popping up and trying to assert their independence. Well, it happens again, and they elect someone called Walter Eansham. Henry was not a happy bunny and managed to persuade Pope Gregory IX to quash the election and get his favourite Richard Grant put into the post, all of which was basically fine and handled, of course, much more effectively than John managed over the election of Stephen Langton. But the Pope expected a payback in the form of a tax of one-tenth of all property, using the excuse of the election of a new Archbishop of Canterbury. Henry held a magnum concilium in April at Westminster and, much to the fury of the barons, refused to back them up as they protested about this tax. It's not the biggest crime Henry will commit, but here we go. It's a first small brick in the wall. So at last, on April the 30th, 1230, Henry's wish was granted and Henry and his army embarked for France. And it all started well enough. There were some lords very interested in the prospect of a breakaway from the French king and the Count of La Marche, our power, Hugh de Lusignan, was among them. Though Thouard picked the right horse, though Thouard de Marie picked the right horse and stuck with Louis. Henry marched to Nantes, taking the homage of all those hopefuls, and all looked pretty good. And then, gentle listeners, Henry just messes about. He marched to Mirabeau in Anjou, and then turned right back down to Gascony rather than left towards the French army at Angers. He then marched back to Nantes, threw a few parties, and arrived back in England in October, having achieved zip, rien de nada. He left a small force there to help the Duke of Brittany, but in 1231, while being given a demonstration of how it should be done by Llewellyn, the Duke of Brittany arrived at court to tell him about the three-year truce that had been agreed with Louis. And that would, for a moment, appear to be that. The truth is that despite Henry clearly having the martial prowess of a tea-towel, the conditions for reconquest anywhere north of Poitiers in particular were very limited. There were no longer many nobles in England with family lands they wanted to reconquer. The nobles in Normandy itself had no desire for Henry to invade, 
The vast majority of them owed their land to Louis, and if Henry took over, the potential for complicated discussions about who had prior rights to what lands would just be hideous. So, for an invasion to be successful, we're looking at a long, grinding war, castle by castle. Nonetheless, Henry retained the homage of Peter of Brittany, marked the calendar for three years' time with Conquer My Old Lands Back, and filed a personal resentment against Hubert that he hadn't somehow make it work out better. To the casual observer, in January 1232, Hubert de Burr looked pretty much unassailable. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In the words of the Waverley Chronicler, he lacked nothing of royal power save the dignity of the royal diadem. And yet, by autumn, Hubert had been swept from court, stripped of all his lands and offices, had become a hunted fugitive before being dragged from his sanctuary, slapped in chains and incarcerated in Devise's castle. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how on earth did that happen? The truth was, in the memorable phrase of the historian Powick, Hubert had become isolated in his greatness. During his power struggle with Peter de Roche in the 1220s, he'd been able to rely on four pillars of support. So let's go through those pillars and see how they've stood up to the weathering of the last eight years. The first pillar had been solid ecclesiastical support from a number of bishops, and particularly the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton. That pillar was now rotten. I should have mentioned, by the way, that these are wooden pillars rather than stone, otherwise the metaphor won't work. Anyway, many of the bishops Hubert had relied on were either dead or too far away to be at court frequently. And meanwhile, his most big and powerful pal, Stephen Langton, was dead. His successor, Richard Grant, with whom Hubert hadn't got on anyway, was also dead, and the see was vacant. The second pillar had been solid support from the baronial class, and in particular from the Marshall family, the Earls of Pembroke. Oh dear, another rotten wooden pillar. Back then, Hubert had been an Englishman against the despised alien party of Des Roches. And capital, given his humble origins, he was suitably impoverished and untitled. But now he's been in control for years. And worse, the little lower-class tick had suddenly become Earl of Kent. The average medieval baron was not a fan of class mobility, oh dearie me no. Added to that, Hubert had blotted his copybook with the Pembrokes. He'd annoyed William Marshall, the guy who'd supported him in 1224, 
which might not have been important given that he'd then died in 1231, but then he'd caused their next brother Richard Marshall trouble as well over his accession to the Marshall estates. So Hubert's baronial support was shaky to say the least. The third pillar was the support of the household and royal administration. Now there was a lot more strength in that particular pillar, but by no means completely solid. So there were some people, for example, who remain in post after Hubert's fall, which kind of suggests that they weren't seen as Hubert's men. Stephen Seagrave is the best example. He's the senior justice under Hubert and becomes the last justicia after Hubert's fall, for a little while anyway. Ralph de Neville, the Chancellor, makes no move at any point to help Hubert in his time of need. Now the last pillar is the king himself, and it's this last pillar which was crucial. And again there are termites working away at this one, the failure to get enough ships in 1228, the failed invasion of 1230, the lack of money, which is a direct contributor to the poor campaign against Llewellyn in 1231. I think we can lose the pillar metaphor now, but the edifice still needed a push. And in July 1231, who should return but Peter de Roche, Bishop of Winchester? Once she arrived back, the old gang was reassembled, all with a grudge to settle against Hubert. Peter de Morlay, who had been removed from Corfe Castle... Angelard de Sigonier, who'd lost Windsor and Odium Castle, Brian de Lille, who'd lost the post of Chief Justice of the Royal Forest, and Peter de Rivo, who'd been removed as the Clerk of the King's Wardrobe. And there now follows a backroom power struggle. It used to be supposed that Peter wormed his way quickly into Henry's affections, and that the two of them planned Hubert's fall in some detail, created a series of traps and then sprung them. More recently, that theory has been poo-pooed, and we have a version that seems to stack up much better with Henry's personality. This version says that basically there's a power struggle between Peter and Hubert. Henry dithers, it swings one way, Henry dithers. It swings the other way, Henry dithers, until a catalyst arrives and Henry is tipped over the edge. It's a battle in seven rounds. Round one, return of the villainous Peter de Roche. In September 1231, Hubert's protégé, Ranulf the Breton, is ejected from the key post of treasure of the royal household. Round 2. The king spends Christmas 1231 at Winchester with Peter. What fun Hubert will have. Round 3 is in March 1232, when the king fails to get a tax on movables approved by the Great Council. Here is further evidence that Hubert can't get the king what he needs, a proper royal revenue. Things are so bad that they've had to pledge the crown jewels in order to pay Peter of Brittany. Round four. Hubert strikes back. Ranulf the Breton is back at court in royal favour. Hubert's man wins a key appointment as Sheriff of Norfolk and Suffolk. Hubert is confirmed as Justiciar of Ireland for life. Round five. Peter de Riveau is appointed to the massively important post of Keeper of the King's Wardrobe and Chamber. He's Peter de Roche's man. Hubert totters. Round 6, July 1232, Henry and Hubert visit the Norfolk Shrine at Bromholm and he spends time with Hubert at his pad at Aylsham. Round 7, Hubert and Henry travel from Norfolk towards Wales. Somewhere between the two, maybe at Woodstock, Peter de Roche arrived at court with letters from the Pope. Pope Gregory's current preoccupation is with a series of riots that have been sweeping England against the Italians that the Pope has appointed to a number of English benefices. The Pope's letters implicate Hubert and suggest that he's been supporting these riots, even whipping them up. Now, you have to understand that as far as Henry is concerned, the Pope is the penultimate authority second only to God. 
On the one hand, the Pope had helped Henry survive in the early days, and secondly, he is, of course, God's representative on earth, and Henry is a pious man. So this is serious stuff. On July the 28th, two more Hubert haters arrive at court, Richard of Pembroke and the Earl of Chester. It turns out that Hubert had a motive. The Pope had raised objections to Hubert's marriage. For Henry, this is the final straw. The king demanded that Hubert answer a series of charges Peter's party made. Where was all the money? Where was that precious stone that made its wearer invulnerable? Had he really caused all this insult to the Pope? Hubert managed to get himself a respite until September and then hightailed it to Merton Priory, but was found and thrown in the Tower of London. Luckily for him, some of the barons thought better of Hubert being convicted of high treason and stood surety for him, including Richard of Pembroke, who seems to have changed his mind. And so Hubert was installed in Devizes Castle under relatively light guard. Hubert de Burgh had achieved a lot during his spell in power. He'd guided the crown carefully back into its full power and control. He'd embedded the principle of consent firmly into this country's governance. Particularly significantly, he'd severed the link between the big magnates and the office of the sheriff, clearly re-establishing sheriffs as separate officers of the crown. But who knows if Henry had or hadn't made the right decisions. After all, ministers come, ministers go. Hubert had certainly failed to build the king's revenue to the level he needed. The war in Wales and France was going poorly as well, so maybe it was time for Hubert to go. But the measure of the man is that he makes the wrong decision now. Peter was a strong-minded chap with a reassuring confidence. He's found out the truth about Hubert. Why not give him a chance? He should have known better, but Peter de Roche was now in charge. Though, true enough, there was a honeymoon period. Richard of Pembroke supported the regime. The Great Council were relieved to be rid of Hubert and as a result agreed to allow the king to raise a tax on all movables of a 40th, which was to raise about £16,000. Peter de Roche's pitch to the king was that he could make the royal finances work and his tool to achieve this was Peter de Riveau. And de Roche therefore got the king to concentrate an extraordinary number of royal offices into the hands of de Riveau. Now, I know a number of people at work who complain about having more than one job, but try this one. Derivo's list of jobs. Treasurer of the King's household, custodian of the King's chamber and wardrobe, keeper of the King's seal, sheriff of Surrey, Staffordshire and Sussex, keeper of royal manors and ports, treasurer of the exchequer. The long and short was that de Roche's claim to be able to restore the royal finances was fluff. Derivo did nothing to investigate and restore revenue from the sheriff's farms, which was the basis for ordinary revenue. The tax on movables and a hack at the Jews kept them going for a while, but in fact this concentration of posts turned out to promote inefficiency in the hands of a man who wasn't up to the job. Meanwhile, Henry had promoted a whole group of men viewed by the barons as aliens, and Henry should have known full well this was going to be a problem. Angelard de Sigonier had even been quoted in Magna Carta for crying out loud. Peter de Roche had been a good deal less popular than Hubert in 1224 because he'd had all the inclinations of a tyrant, a man taught at the school of King John. In February 1233, de Roche got Henry to take a manor from Gilbert Bassett, Pembroke's man, and give it to Peter de Morlay, de Roche's man. This was despite a royal charter to Gilbert as recent as 1229 which gave him hereditary right. Pembroke and Bassett demanded there should therefore be a hearing, and by the terms of Magna Carta, it should be in front of their peers. But Peter de Roche laughed in the face of Magna Carta and farted in its general direction. 
And nor was this the only case of such high-handed illegal seizure of land in exactly the way that Magna Carta had been desired to prevent. We know of at least six others. It was enough. By autumn 1233 it was back to civil war, with Marshall and his allies demanding that Henry, in the words of one analyst, should adhere to the counsels of the native men of the kingdom. Bishop Peter was quite happy with the idea of a good fight. And in Ireland it was all tickety-boo with the laces quickly overrunning Pembroke's lands. But in Wales it was a completely different story. Pembroke committed the ultimate sin and made alliance with Llewellyn. And although the other barons wouldn't join Pembroke, nor would they fight against him. Twice Henry advanced into South Wales only to suffer a reverse at Gromont and to be forced to abandon a siege at Usk. Usk, by the way, is now the most genuinely cute castle to visit. It may not be like one of the big show castles like Harlech or Chepstow, but it's sort of in someone's back garden and has a lovely atmosphere. So if you're in the area, I'd definitely recommend it. Meanwhile, Gilbert Bassett plundered Derivo's lands and even sprung Hubert from jail and brought him to Wales. In February 1234, a saviour appeared in the form of Edmund of Abingdon, the new Archbishop of Canterbury. He was as determined as Stephen Langton to see Magna Carta succeed. And in a series of great councils, he convinced even Henry that peace had to be brought to the kingdom and that only the removal of the two Peters would achieve it. Despite the death of Richard of Pembroke, by May the process was complete. Bishop Peter had left court. Peter de Rivo had been relieved of his offices. Henry had received the rebels back into his allegiance and accepted Gilbert Marshall, the next Marshall brother, as successor to the Pembroke estates. He fessed up to seizing land by royal will rather than by law, gave the rebels the kiss of peace. All the chroniclers were full of praise for his humility, for admitting his mistakes and listening to the Archbishop of Canterbury, which shouldn't hide the fact that he had comprehensively messed up. Surely he won't be committing the mistake of bringing in a load of Frenchmen again. There was worse to come. The truce with Louis IX had come to an end, and there was no money and no army in sight. The best he could do was send out some household knights and some Welsh foot soldiers, but it wasn't enough. Duke Peter, having received over £13,000 from the English over the last three years, submitted to Louis on the basis of the English strategy having failed again. Peter de Rivo didn't do too badly out of the whole thing. He had a bad couple of years in the wilderness but was pardoned in 1236 and from then on had a stream of small jobs, was readmitted to the court in 1250 and died in 1262. De Roche hopped off back to see Frederick the Holy Roman Emperor but this time round his relationships were soured by a letter from Henry telling Frederick to be wary of him. So de Roche returned and died in 1238. You can see his effigy in Winchester Cathedral if you so wish. Hubert de Burgh was the last of the great justiciars. His hereditary lands were confirmed to him by Henry, but Henry quite clearly never forgave him. 1237 he was threatened again with a treason trial, and he died at the grand old age of 73 at his manor at Banstead in Surrey. So, I think that seems like a suitable place to stop. I have some donators to thank. Simon, David, Paul, Ian and Bob, thank you very much for your generosity. Thanks to all of you for waiting. Good luck and have a great week.